how Ubik, the scientific bushranger, robbed the Morningvale Company safe. By Clarence W. Martin, published in the Geelong Observer, Saturday, April 2, 1910. A pelting rain volleyed against the veranda of the Royal Hotel at Morganville. A roaring wind boomed upon the iron roof. Miners, just off shift, rushed to the shelter of the bar, where they speedily forgot their outer soaking by the application of liquid inwardly. Steele strode the length of the balcony, stopping now and again to peer into the blinding rain to search for a figure that he had expected to see hours before. Evidently afraid of getting wet, he muttered angrily. After all, this information may prove valueless. Anyway, he ought to be here soon. As if in answer to his muttered ejaculation, a figure of a tall man crossed the street and entered the door. Sorry I'm late, apologise the man, but I had to stop and assist the engineer as some water flooded the shaft, he explained. Well, have you heard anything further? questioned Steele. I saw him making a sketch of the office doors, answered the man. When did you say the money arrived for the payment of the men? It comes tomorrow afternoon. The men are paid the morning after, returned the man. Quite so, muttered Steele, more to himself than the other. He thought for a moment, then exclaimed suddenly, I suppose you really understand the necessity of silence in this matter. Oh, I can keep my mouth shut, especially when I am paid for it, he surly answered. Steele took the hint and handed some money to the man, who speedily took his departure, leaving Steele gazing into space in deep thought. Steele had traced Ubique to Morganville from Brisbane. After the incident of the pearls, a man who may have been the bushranger from the description of his height was seen to jump onto the kuma just as she was preparing to leave. Steele could not use the telegraph, as his information may have been correct or not. Besides, one cannot have a man arrested on a description of so slight a foundation. But Steele possessed intuition, and he felt confident that Ubik was the man. In any case, it was the only clue he had, slight as it was. And so Steele had booked to Morganville by train, hoping thereby to reach the town first, and thus have the opportunity of watching the passengers. This he had done, but no sign of the wanted man could be seen. Yet he had arrived, for a letter reached him at his hotel next morning, informing him of the writer's intention to rob the company's safe, and to add insult to injury, had defied Steele to prevent him. I shall give you the opportunity of making good your boast to trap me, had been the concluding words. And Steele spent money right and left, had paid spies on every shift of miners, but the only information had been the vague story of a man searching the office. Steele strode the length of the veranda like a caged lion. He would have much preferred to take the bearings of the town and the great Morganville mines, but one could never be certain of being unobserved. And as he did not wish to show his hand to prying eyes, he would take a stroll round on the midnight shift. Yes, that would be the best plan, he thought. And entering his room, he threw himself on the bed and gave way to deep thought. He paid a visit to the mine at midnight shift and gazed narrowly at every man as he passed, but could discern none that resembled the noted outlaw. 
Tall men there were in plenty, but none possessed the elastic step of the man he sought. He made a special point of men who stooped or limped, but if a man limped, it was through accident, as he afterwards learned from the foreman. So, nonplussed and in a bad frame of mind, he walked back to the hotel and sought solace in slumber. He interviewed the manager the next morning. Good morning, Mr. Steele, I believe, greeted the manager effusively. Yes, sir. You received my explanatory letter, I suppose. Oh, yes. It seems to me to be a kind of a hoax. No sane man would acquaint anyone beforehand of his intentions, remarked the manager. But this man is perfectly sane, replied Steele, and possesses the acumen of twenty ordinary criminals. Well, he'll need it. Our safe would take a locksmith a week to break it open with a sledge and drill, even if he were given carte blanche, added the manager. Do you have a watchman on duty tonight? queried Steele. Yes, he has to pass the office every fifteen minutes. A recorder has to be pressed every time the watchman passes. In addition, he looks through the window to see that the safe is not being tampered with. Do you possess the keys, may I ask? Well, I possess one, the head cashier has the other, and neither of us can open the safe unless the other is present. I will keep watch tonight, said Steele, and I shall have a constable stationed at the back. No one will be able to approach without one of us seeing him. I think you will find it is all a hoax, returned the manager. Anyway, we shall see. Good morning. So far, Steele had nothing to worry about. Nothing, that is, as yet. Nothing had been accomplished to cause him any uneasiness. After all, it would take someone cleverer than the outlaw to enter the office unseen, he thought, and, whistling gaily, he went to the local inspector to arrange for a man to keep watch with him at night. Steele greeted the local sergeant with a cheery, Good morning. I want the pick of three of your men, he said. There's a danger of the company losing their cash tonight, and I want to have the pleasure of putting the derbies on a man who has evaded the law long enough. So you suspect the identity of the man? queried the sergeant. No, not suspect, I know. And Steele acquainted the astonished sergeant of his impudent letter. The sergeant gave vent to a prolonged whistle. You beak, was his comment. Great Scott, he'll want a bit of fixing. Why, every man in the Queensland forces had a try at him, only to be made to seem a blithering idiot. Steele winced at the sergeant's last words and gave way to a gesture of annoyance. Perhaps he will be the idiot tonight, he savagely remarked. Let's hope so. Still, I'll be content to think him an idiot when he is safely under lock and key. But even then, his past exploits will prove him anything but that, he added. Can you let me have the men tonight? Yes, you are welcome. I will come too if you wish it. Certainly. Bring your men to my hotel at ten o'clock. We will go up together. That will be early enough as the manager and his cashier do not leave until eleven tonight. After that, the watchman is in charge. Very well, returned the sergeant, and I hope we'll have the reward of our vigils. Amen, fervently uttered Steele. It was a hot night as the small body of watches ascended the hill leading to the works. A beautiful full moon shone upon the pay office and lit up the surrounding ward with the searching brilliancy of a thousand arcs. It will take a smart man to cross the yard without us seeing him, muttered Steele to the sergeant. 
Yes, that is if he's not already inside. No chance of that, returned Steele. See, the door is locked, but the watchman can see the safe every time he passes. No one could work on it without the watchman giving the alarm. Besides, he added, even granting a man were inside, he would only have 15 minutes to break open a safe that would take a gang of men a day to accomplish with drills and jelly night. It is out of the question. If that's the case, we shall have our watch for nothing. I hope not. I'd give five years of my life to trap him red-handed. So would others, replied the sergeant. Steele touched his hand to command silence. A figure could be discerned coming across the yard. It made straight for the office door. Steele had commenced to rush upon the man, but a hearty good evening reassured him. It was the manager. Thought I was the robber, laughed the manager. As daring as he is, I hardly think I'd have the temerity to walk up the door in this light, said Steele. I only came up to see if you were comfortable. Would you like a nip? And he proffered a flask. Well, good night and good luck, he said, replacing his flask. I hope the cash is here when I return in the morning. That will be all right, I think, returned Steele. Au revoir till the morning. The night passed pleasantly away to the accompaniment of stories and incidents of the bush, delivered with the expertness of the raconteur by the genial sergeant. The sun had burst through the clouds some two hours when Steele glanced at his watch. Six o'clock, he informed the sergeant. Another hour and the manager will be here to take charge. Well, we have seen the safe every few minutes and it is still intact, he laughed. So our enterprising friend has been safely left. Yes, returned the sergeant. He should not have skited so loud. Then perhaps we should not have waited for him. Ah, here is the manager and cashier coming across the yard, cried Steele. We shall soon be able to enjoy a good breakfast. No sign of the terror, queried the manager, looking through the window. I can see the safe door is intact, he added, but I suppose you had better see it before you leave, though it is only a matter of form. He opened the door and advanced toward the safe, taking out his keys as he did so. He put his hand on the top to steady himself, and the supposed safe toppled to the floor. The manager's jaw dropped. The safe was a wooden replica of the door and had been fixed to the floor. And what the watchman and the detective had viewed every 15 minutes had been the false representation of the safe. The manager was incapable of speech, still rushed to the safe, and a sight met his eyes that turned his blood to ice. The safe door was melted away as completely as if it were butter, a large opening in the floor being covered with fragments of metal. My God, done again, was all his dry lips could utter. Yes, and 10,000 pounds gone, moaned the manager. Still made an examination of the opening in the floor. It led to a small aperture, presumably in the face of the solid rock. I'll come after breakfast, he informed the discomfited manager. With the sergeant and his men, they descended the hill like a tired flock of sheep, too full for words. They parted at the hotel door, where at breakfast, a few minutes later, 
Steele's wonderment was dispelled by a letter that had been left for him. Steele knew too well who was his correspondent as he broke the envelope and composed his mind to read the fatal news. Dear Steele, it ran, sorry you should have a night in the open. Did you think I was going to walk up to the door with a kit of burglar's tools on my back? Fie, Steele, you should know me better by now. Still, it's up to me for the enlightenment of future detectives to acquaint you with my modus operandi. I had worked in several shafts here before, so I knew that the little-used north winds led under the office, and I had no difficulty in my spare time drilling the small space of rock that divided the floor of the office. Now for the joke. While you and your trusty men were keeping watch, I prized up the boards and setting up my sham safe fixed thermite against the lock and with my little battery, soon had it open. Do you know what thermite is? It is a composition that develops an intense heat only to be produced in a laboratory without its aid. Its chief compound is aluminium filings, and it can melt steel as easily as cheese in a few minutes. So, now having inculcated in you the science of chemistry, I take the opportunity of bidding you goodbye. Sorry I cannot make it in person. Yours, but not now. You beak. Damn! Was Steele's only comment. The Helpful Bushranger by William Moore Farrar first published in the Launceston Examiner, 6th April, 1867. Chapter 20. The flames arose high in the air, choking first one and then another, singeing Mr. Juniper's eyelashes, setting his tattered coat on fire and threatening to baffle all his efforts. The playful breezes accelerated the fire's progress and they darted along the ground, through the dry grass and withered leaves with the rapidity of lightning. Seizing upon the paddock fence, gliding through to the other side, and commencing to devour like an eager epicure the overripe grain. The cry was now for water, water! But the cask had been emptied, and two men had gone to the river to fill it again. Here, Juniper and seven men labored as for their lives. As they laid about them like madmen with their bows, they were joined by another man, a tall, sallow faced stranger, whom nobody had seen before. This individual threw a fresh bow upon the blazing corn with almost superhuman energy and shouted, Courage! Courage! We'll beat it yet! The men redoubled their labours. Though blinded with smoke and panting for breath, the burning fence was pulled down. And in a few minutes, Mr Juniper shouted, It's all our own, lads, but it was a close shave! A messenger now arrived with some more wine, and after Juniper had taken a draught, a little was handed to the stranger at his request. While he drank, the surveyor scanned his face and person with curiosity. His appearance was remarkable, differing in a great measure from that of working men in general. Juniper, absorbed by an idea which he could not suppress, determined to question him, and said, Are you at work in these parts, friend? Yes, replied the man, showing at the same time a disposition to move off. Who is your master? 
Mr. Baxter, I'm one of his bullock drivers. You are not, said Juniper. I know you. Stop. I arrest you in the king's name. Do you, said the stranger icily. Follow me and you are a dead man. He pulled a pistol out of his breast pocket and cocked it as he spoke. Follow me, men, and take him, cried Juniper. He is a bushranger. There's fifty pounds on his head or two hundred acres of land. Come on. Juniper advanced, but not a man stirred to follow him. The outlaw, if he was one, threatened loudly to blow his brains out if he came any farther, and he stopped. The stranger retreated into the burning forest, laughing in derision. He won't come and help us put out fires again, said one of the men. Why didn't you help me to secure him, said Juniper. There's fifty pounds, a free pardon and a grant of land for him, dead or alive. He never done no mischief to us, sir, said another man. We never seen him afore, and how could we take him with the eyes nearly burnt out of our heads? Well, you have lost a prize, that's all, said Juniper. This incident afforded matter for a good deal of conversation and conjecture, and was a kind of relief after the excitement of the fire. The conduct of the outlaw was inexplicable. All the bush lawyers present agreed that it was far more likely for a bush ranger to burn a crop of wheat than to save it from destruction. Nobody could understand it, and even the oldest wiseacre in the circle was obliged to leave the matter in dark obscurity.